Last year, in 2020, Israeli archaeologists did a deep dive on a bundle of ancient letters that had been excavated back in the 1960s. They were written on pottery, which by now had crumbled into more than a hundred broken pieces. They came from a remote military outpost near the city of Arad, out in the Negev Desert, which at the time would have been the far reaches of the Kingdom of Judah. The letters dated from the 600s BCE, around the time of Kings Manasseh and Josiah, and they dealt with pretty much what you'd expect from a small military base. Supplies, orders, food requests, things like that. They give us a glimpse into the daily lives of Israelite soldiers 2,600 years ago. So, okay, you're thinking that's kind of a fun find, but so what? Well, the significance here is actually the obvious one. That some of these soldiers could read. Of the estimated 20 to 30 soldiers at this outpost, at least four of the officers were literate. Plus, of course, the people back home who wrote them the letters in the first place. Scholars identified at least 12 separate writers of these letters. When we think about ancient history, we probably assume that most people were illiterate, that reading and writing were limited only to specialized elites like official scribes. And in many cases, that's true. But that assumption left scholars with a conundrum. Historians have long dated the process of editing the Hebrew Bible together to have taken place over at least a couple hundred years, probably starting in the 600s and really picking up steam during and after the Babylonian exile in the 500s. But if everyone was illiterate back in the 600s, then it's hard to see how such a deep and complex literary tradition like the Bible could have come together that early. That's why these letters from a remote military base out in the desert, that's why they're such a great find. They tell us that literacy in the 600s was much more widespread than you might otherwise assume. Dr. Barak Sober, one of the scholars who examined the letters, said that someone had to teach them how to read and write, so we must assume the existence of an appropriate educational system in Judah at the end of the First Temple period. Dr. Sober said that literacy wasn't universal amongst the 120,000 people who lived in Judah, but it was an ability common within the military, religious, and civil bureaucracies. In other words, lots of people in the establishment were literate, and we can extrapolate that it was enough to carry forth the biblical literary tradition, making it ever more likely that the Bible did indeed begin to come together in the 600s. So besides the fact that I love this stuff, why do we care? Well, we care because this evidence jives with the biblical account of King Josiah, who reigned for 30 years, from about 640 to 609 BCE. As we talked about last episode, Josiah initiated a series of religious reforms that profoundly changed the culture and purpose of Israelite religion. He gave us all a huge shove towards monotheism. And it seems he based it all on a trove of wisdom contained in a long-lost ancient book. Or maybe it wasn't actually lost. Maybe he wrote it. So we're talking about King Josiah and how the Hebrew Bible began to come together. That's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. One of the first things that Josiah did when he initiated his system of religious reform was to repair and upgrade the temple in Jerusalem. 
Josiah's efforts were to centralize all Israelite worship at the temple, what he considered to be the only legitimate house of the Israelite national god, Yahweh. He forcibly dismantled the various other shrines around his kingdom, called the High Places. He removed any statues, altars, or idols to any other gods besides Yahweh, and consolidated the priesthood in Jerusalem. After centuries of neglect by the various monarchs, the temple was in sore need of restoration. Now, on the one hand, this wasn't that big of a deal. In fact, it was a pretty ordinary duty of Near Eastern kings in ancient times. As every local mayor knows, people expect the upkeep and restoration of important public structures, from roads to schools. Temples were essential buildings of the state, and kings were expected to both maintain them and oversee the ritual functions of worship. And so Josiah's restoration of the temple might have passed through history without much comment, except for something extraordinary that happened. Josiah appointed his high priest, a man named Hilkiah, to oversee the restoration. In the 1980s, archaeologists found two clay seals with Hilkiah's name on them, so we know with a high degree of certainty that he really existed. In about the year 622, the 18th year of Josiah's reign, Hilkiah was digging around in a forgotten corner of the archives when he made a remarkable find. A long-lost ancient text from centuries earlier. Hilkiah called it a scroll of the teaching, sometimes translated as a book of the law. In Hebrew, the word is Torah. And this scroll of teaching, this Torah, was a bombshell. The scroll was quickly brought to Josiah. He was stunned, for the scroll seemed to explain exactly why disasters had befallen the Israelites over the past couple hundred years, from the destruction of Israel to the odious policies of Manasseh. It also suggested that due to the Israelites' ongoing sins, more destruction was in store. The agitated king gave an order, Go inquire of the Lord on my behalf, and on behalf of the people, and on behalf of all Judah, concerning the words of this scroll that has been found. For great indeed must be the wrath of the Lord that has been kindled against us, because our fathers did not obey the words of this scroll to do all that has been prescribed for us. Josiah's men quickly ran through the streets of Jerusalem, searching for one house in particular. The home of a woman named Huldah, a prophet, one of only seven women prophets in the Bible. Huldah confirmed the authenticity of the text. Go tell Josiah, she said, Thus said the Lord, I am going to bring disaster upon this place and its inhabitants, in accordance with all the words of the scroll which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me, and have made offerings to other gods, and vexed me with all their deeds, my wrath is kindled against this place, and it shall not be quenched. As for Josiah, Huldah claimed that he would be spared. Because your heart was softened, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I decreed against this place and its inhabitants, that it will become a desolation and a curse, and because you rent your clothes and wept before me, I for my part have listened, declares the Lord. Assuredly, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be laid in your tomb in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster which I will bring upon this place. With this scroll in hand, King Josiah was determined that the people should know its contents so that they might follow the commandments. The Book of Kings sets the scene. The king called to the temple all the people, young and old, priests and prophets, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And there he read to them the entire text of the covenant scroll. 
the king stood by the pillar and solemnized the covenant before the Lord, that they would follow the Lord and observe his commandments, his injunctions, and his laws with all their heart and soul, that they would fulfill all the terms of this covenant as inscribed upon the scroll, and all the people entered into the covenant. The scroll railed against the idolatry that the Israelites had been practicing, polytheistic practices which abandoned their duty to observe and uphold the covenant made with God. Further disaster seemed imminent. What happened to the northern kingdom of Israel might very well now happen to Judah and Jerusalem. Time was of the essence. It was this scroll then, this teaching, this book of law, that inspired Josiah to embark on his aggressive religious reform, to eliminate idolatry, to centralize worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and to purify the holy place of any and all other deities. It was not a new innovation, but instead a return to the Israelites' religious roots, which had until then been forgotten. At least, that's the story that Josiah told us. But historians think there's a slightly different version. It's certainly possible that Josiah and his officials discovered a long-lost scroll that laid out how Josiah ought to go about reforming religion to return Israel to its roots to stave off disaster. But for the last couple hundred years, scholars have argued that the more likely story is that someone close to Josiah conspired to write it and dramatically reveal it to the people in order to justify Josiah's reforms. If Josiah's policies are coming from God, after all, then they must be legitimate. The reason scholars think this is because we've long known pretty clearly what the scroll was that Hilkiah found. It was the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Hebrew Bible, the last of what we call the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, all of which are attributed to the authorship of Moses himself, and which collectively are referred to as the Torah. The problem is that Deuteronomy stands apart from those other four, and indeed has much more in common with the six or seven books that come after it. Books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and to a certain extent, Jeremiah. These books recount a narrative history of the kings of Israel and Judah that we've been discussing these last several episodes. Pretty much all the stories, peoples, and ideas you've been hearing about come from this series, which scholars call the Deuteronomistic History. Think of it like one long, continuous storyline broken up into different books for thematic and chronological convenience. The Deuteronomistic history tells the storyline from essentially the death of Moses all the way down through King Josiah. Kings David and Solomon, the united monarchy, the split into the separate kingdoms of Judah and Israel, all the kingships. But interspersed throughout these stories are also the themes we've been discussing like that bad kings practice idolatry and good kings exclusively worship Yahweh, like the legitimacy of the line of kings from David, like the central importance of the temple in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is Israel's eternal capital, like the covenant between the Israelite people and their national god Yahweh. These parts are coming from an author, or a school of authors, who composed this Deuteronomistic history, less to record actual factual history, and more to present an ideological and theological viewpoint down through the ages. Whoever they were, they were close allies of King Josiah, 
setting up a court history that makes him look very good indeed. The question is, why? Why write this? And why now, around the year 622 BCE? A deeper question might be, when faced with an existential threat, how does Judaism survive? When we're looking at not just our own deaths, but the end of our people, how do we interpret that threat? And therefore, what strategy do we develop to defeat it? The historian Paul Johnson writes that at this time, the people of Judah, including the king, were feeling very anxious about their fate. They saw how the Assyrians destroyed the kingdom of Israel, scattering its people forever. Judah had now lost most of its kingdom too. In one fell swoop, all could be gone. Now the Israelites had been here before. We talked about how in the days of the judges, back around 1100 BCE, the individual Israelite tribes perceived an existential threat from the Philistines encroaching on their territory. The answer to that challenge was a political and military one. They appointed a king to unite the tribes in command and organize national military. Now, Paul Johnson writes, the people began to link their ultimate political and military fate with their current ideology and moral behavior. The notion seems to have spread that the people could only be saved by faith and works. It was, he says, a religious solution to the national problem of survival. God, Yahweh, had to be appeased, and the question was how. Josiah's answer to the urgent question of national survival was that appeasing God meant a complete change in the religious culture of Israel, a national religious awakening. The past cultic practices of idolatry and polytheism had to be destroyed, and in its place an orthodox system of fidelity to the laws of Moses that followed from the covenant with God. The biblical scholar Mordechai Kogan writes that this was the ideological platform of Josiah's reform movement, the demand for centralization of worship at a single site, the temple in Jerusalem, and its purification from all foreign forms. This is the essence of the Deuteronomistic history, and it became an essential part of the ideological foundation of what would become ethical monotheism, that is, Judaism. But we're not quite there yet. What we're seeing here is the first big stab at compiling Israel's text into a unified whole, what became the Hebrew Bible as we know it today. Now this was an incredibly complex process that generated over a couple hundred years, and that includes this Deuteronomistic history, which Josiah's allies began compiling. Now it wasn't like they made up all these stories from scratch. Plenty of the stories in the Deuteronomistic history come from the distant past. We saw, for instance, that the story of the warrior Deborah in the book of Judges was probably first written in the 1100s and then preserved through the generations. When Josiah read out this scroll to the people of Jerusalem, it's not like they hadn't heard of King David or King Solomon before. Instead, what the writer of the Deuteronomy scroll did was tell a narrative history of Israel from the point of view of this new religious ideology. He took the existing stories and inserted additional sentences to update them with this new religious approach. Take, for example, King Solomon. The Israelites knew that shortly after Solomon's reign, the united monarchy split apart into two separate kingdoms, Israel in the north and their own Judah in the south. 
What the writer did here is insert into the story the reason why the kingdom split. It was because of Solomon's idolatry, see? Remember those 700 foreign wives Solomon had and all their gods that had to be accommodated and worshipped? The writer went down through the Deuteronomistic history to explain that everything bad happened because the kings and the people rejected the singularity of Yahweh, or because they adopted polytheistic practices, or because they refused to recognize the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem. That's why the northern kingdom of Israel fell a hundred years ago. God sent the Assyrians to sack the kingdom as punishment for their sins. But at the same time, the writer added another thread into the historical narrative. That of the permanence of the Davidic dynasty. In addition to the covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, in which they would hold to God's commandments and God would bless them, God also made a covenant with King David. David's dynasty would always rule in Jerusalem and would be the only legitimate dynasty. That's why all the kings of Israel in the north were such hopeless failures. They weren't legitimate. And that's also why, even when the kings of Judah, David's kings, even when they behaved badly, that's why their dynasty survived. That's why Jerusalem hadn't been sacked under their rule for nearly 400 years now. Josiah, said this text, was of the Davidic line, was the legitimate king, and therefore his religious reforms must be legitimate too. Now, spoiler alert, what Josiah didn't know when he read this scroll to the people was that Jerusalem would in fact fall in about 30 years time. But we'll get to all that. What we're seeing here is how real-world events shaped the religious ideology of the Israelites, which in turn shaped the creation of the Hebrew Bible as we read it today. The editor of this Deuteronomistic history was working within constraints. He couldn't erase things that the Israelites knew would happen, and he couldn't suddenly add things that the Israelites had never heard of before. The biblical scholar Richard Elliott Friedman writes that, The Deuteronomistic writer was governed by both events and tradition. His task was to record history and to interpret history in the light of tradition. Friedman writes that the issues and events that were taking place around him had an impact on the way he pictured God and history. So, for instance, after a century of Assyrian subjugation, Judah now seemed to have an opportunity to shake off its vassal state of mind and awaken a new religious impulse. For this editor, this gave him the opportunity to go back through history and reinterpret events in light of the covenant between God and the people, and between God and the house of David. It's not that he made up this covenant from scratch. Friedman argues that he just happened to be the one who wrote about it. The tradition itself was much older, and so of course the Israelites already knew about it, and so it wasn't a surprise when he cited this covenant as an explanation for contemporary events. Friedman writes that the writer here shaped the history of Israel around four themes, all of which we find in this chunk of the Bible from the books of Deuteronomy through Jeremiah. The first is fidelity to Yahweh. The second is the Davidic covenant, the idea that God promised the kings from the line of David would rule forever. The third is the centralization of religion at the temple in Jerusalem. And the fourth is the Torah, the teaching, the law. He then, writes Friedman, interpreted the major events of history through these four themes. 
The united monarchy of David and Solomon split because Solomon had forsaken Yahweh and the Torah. But David's descendants managed to keep Jerusalem and Judah because of the promise God had made to David. But now, a hundred years ago, the northern kingdom of Israel fell because, again, the people and the kings turned to idolatry and did not follow the Torah. But now, under Josiah, everything will be fine because Josiah and Hilkiah had rediscovered the Torah and the temple and were now dedicated to fulfilling its instructions. Despite the precariousness of Judah under Assyria, despite the previous failures of the people and the kings to adhere to the covenant, all will now be well. Jerusalem is saved. So we can't say for certain who wrote this scroll of Deuteronomy that Hilkiah supposedly found in the temple. It could have been Hilkiah, either on his own or with Josiah. Could have been other scribes who were also in the king's confidence. Either way, we ended up with a big chunk of the Deuteronomistic history. This included not just the history of the kings, but also many of the laws and obligations that made up the covenant with God, the underpinnings of the Jewish faith. King Josiah, the priest Hilkiah, and the other writers of this early version of Deuteronomy got us almost to Judaism almost to the ethical monotheism that underpins the Jewish religion, people, and culture. But they were missing something big. It's not their fault. We can't know the future, so Josiah couldn't see beyond his own death in the year 609 BCE. Just a few years after Josiah claimed to have discovered this lost book of Deuteronomy, the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians. It was a world historical event that, generally speaking, was good news for Judah, their great enemy was no more. On the other hand, the geopolitical fallout was complicated. The Babylonians fought to secure their newfound hold, the Assyrians engaged in last-ditch efforts to hang on, and the Egyptians allied themselves with Assyria, their old enemy, in an attempt to keep the Babylonians at bay. In the midst of this, the Egyptian pharaoh marched his army across Canaan on his way to link up with the last Assyrian king. For reasons we don't quite know, King Josiah tried to stop the Egyptians. He met them in battle near Megiddo, in present-day Israel, and there he was killed. This not only threw his entire religious reform movement into doubt, since he was the prime driver of it, it also touched off 20 years of conflict as his successor king subverted his new ideology, failed to defend Jerusalem, and led Judah into catastrophe. For what was coming now was Babylon. In short time, the Babylonians would sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and end once and for all the Davidic monarchy. Josiah's writers couldn't have anticipated this, and it upended everything. Josiah's reforms, it turns out, weren't actually enough to save Jerusalem. The Babylonians, or more precisely the exile that the Babylonians imposed on Judah's leaders, they were the final building block in a 600-year-long journey from Israelite religion to Judaism. It was the single greatest crisis thus far in our history, but also the single greatest opportunity for invention. That's next time. My website is jewidontknow.com, and as always, my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitraot. See you later.